Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI in the Future of Work, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Now, AI-first applications have catalyzed the need for new application architectures. The digital services we rely on, everything from Netflix to Uber to Facebook, require phenomenally complicated combinations of microservices, APIs, storage, caching, compute resources, and other elements that were just unimaginable even a decade ago. We've introduced new computing frameworks to keep up with the complexity and velocity of these new computing paradigms. One of the most fundamental ways the world of DevOps has changed is through the introduction of containers as a way to evolve beyond the limitations of deploying on VMs or even on bare metal. There aren't many experts on all things related to containers on the whole planet, but we're lucky enough to have one of them on today's show. There's nothing geeky about being responsible for the technology and teams that have been on the forefront of container innovation. In fact, when you pass Bonjot on the street, thank him for making sure your dim sum was delivered on time or maybe your denim jeans weren't uh, shipped to, say, Kenya. Bonjot has been a product leader at companies like Docker, Google, and Amazon. After spending nearly eight years at VMware, he not only helped accelerate widespread adoption of containers, but he's also been on the front lines of a space near and dear to my heart, container management and monitoring. We don't give course credit for listening to the podcast, but you know what? If we did, you should get some units for hanging out with Bunjot. Without further ado, welcome Bunjot Chanana to AI and the Future of Work. Why don't we get started by having you? Uh... Introduce yourself and uh, tell us how you got into the space. Sure. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'll start with the, my, my background. I, I, started, I started my professional career um, out of college, planning to go to medical school uh, probably at some point, and decided to join a small public health consulting firm called JSI, John Snow Inc., where they looked at my background and said, you have no background in public health whatsoever. How about you work in our IT department? I was like, sure, sounds great. I'd done a little bit of uh, support, uh, you know, uh, computer support when I was in uh, at Brown, and I decided that was that would be a reasonable step forward uh, for my professional career. And sure enough, four years later, I spent many years at JSI getting tons of great mentorship, learning a ton about public health and a ton about the industry, but also learning about kind of how IT and IT infrastructure and managing that infrastructure efficiently could help help our staff, uh, help them be more productive. And actually we were running a small software software development company, uh, developing software for fundraising for, uh, for nonprofits. And so I got to see software development as well for the first time. And so that was the start of my IT career. I spent a number of years after that at various companies from Verisign to VMware. Uh, I, I left the V companies uh, to go to Docker. Uh, so I saw the future from VMs to containers and I thought, man, all the same problems we solved for, for VMs, we got to solve for, for containers at the very least. I found a whole bunch of new problems that we had to solve for that uh, really excited me and then decided uh, I would you know, go to Google and learn how to run a uh, enterprise service, enterprise software as a service at GCP. So 
So I did monitoring for a couple of years there, and now I'm at AWS running their go-to-market for containers. Now, one of the things that I think is commonly misunderstood about DevOps is that when we casually say things like, you write it, you own it, that implies that uh, we're turning developers into operators, which I think is quite a misnomer for all of us that are in the trenches. Um, question for you, why is achieving that holy grail of DevOps so hard? And what's, what's your advice to companies that are struggling to get there? Yeah, I, I think we try to bite off more than we can chew when we take on DevOps. It's only in the rarest of companies do developers actually own their code all the way through to production. And even then, typically, what is production for some of these enterprises that we work with? Is production really the running service that's running in production for their consumers? Is production just a set of software that someone else then deploys and installs on site at their customer and then you know, they provide capabilities to their consumers. So it, it really becomes, I think, a question of where the ownership model starts and ends. We know the ownership model shouldn't be what it was five years ago, 10 years ago, where we literally threw software over the wall and said, hey, ops, go run this, figure out how to do it at scale, figure out how to do it reliably, figure out how to make sure it's performant and make sure you're complying with all of our enterprise regulations and you know external security requirements. That, that clearly did not work. So what we had to do is spread some of the responsibility backwards and forwards so that there's some operational responsibility for developers. And at the same time, we, we owe it as, as operations teams and, and architects in IT, we owe it to our developers to make their lives easier. So it's not just, here's some software, it seemed to work on my laptop, why don't I give it to you? You figure out how to make it work on you know, your production grade server environment or in the cloud. And I think what we've gotten to is a point where now we've agreed on at least some of the, some of the interface back and forth between those teams. So now we can use containers, for example, as an interface to, to pass the software back and forth. And there's some guarantee there that, oh, it worked on a sandbox environment, whether it's my laptop or whether it's small set of uh, VMs that I was running it on, I can now pass it to you. And you can at least be assured that we're not worried about which operating system you ran it on. We're not worried about which kernel version you're running it on, on Linux. We're not sure which app framework you were using. We can at least know we can get that running. So I think the, the hardest thing about DevOps is finding the right interface uh, handoff points. It's, it's figuring out at what point does dev really hand off to ops? And at what point does ops really bring in dev as a part of troubleshooting scenario or dealing with a production outage? Uh, and, and once you can have identify those, those points of interfaces that are productive for both teams, then I think you can make, make progress. Um, you know, the, the tooling and the automation and figuring out how to automate your CI pipeline, all that comes as a result. Uh, those, those are all solvable problems and we know how to solve those now with all the tools we've got. I usually describe the need for containers as being a kind of a function of the evolution of software development where velocity has gone up, CI CD pipelines, rapid iterations, um, but you're the expert. Maybe give us, maybe that's the start of, of, of maybe a better answer. Why did 
containers evolve, what was broken about VMs? Yeah, VMs were a great construct for operators. I, it, it provided a level of efficiency, it provided the isolation they cared about. That was all good. But honestly, as a, as a developer, did you care what a, whether your code was running in a VM or on a physical server? Only if you got a phone call saying, "Hey, my app, your app is running slow. Can you come and uh, you know solve that for us?" Other than that, you really didn't want to be dealing with that level of infrastructure. What was I think helpful for containers was it was the first time I had seen developers appreciate the capability that operators were providing them. This was actually something that they actually did want to use. In fact, most of the open source adoption we saw at Docker was largely from developers. It was, it was not from operators initially. It was only when developers went to their operations teams or their IT architects and said, this has got to look like a Docker interface because that's, that's been super helpful for me to be able to accelerate my own development process. That's, that's, when, you know, that's when we saw operators pick it up and say, hey, actually, there's benefit for us too. Like we can centralize how we do logging. We can centralize how we do our observability. We can, uh, we can run things much more consistently because there's now a standard abstraction by which we run everything. Was a VM, now it looks like a container. And what's nice about the container is there are standard outputs for how we interface with the rest of our operations tools, unlike VMs where you still had to install agents. You still had some custom capabilities you had to you know, integrate into that environment. How should we think about the future of containers as more applications are architected to be, well, you know, we use the term serverless, but ephemeral infrastructure, essentially. Talk us through the implications of that on containers. Yeah, I think, I think containers become the building block for this. Um, I think over time, we will stop talking about operating systems. I think operating systems go away, quite honestly. We are still talking about base images and containers. I think those eventually we will standardize and go away. I think at some point we are going to move to a model where you literally do write your app, deploy it, and never worry about what infrastructure it actually runs on. Today we're we're getting closer. I think you know some serverless technologies uh, do make headway there, but I don't think it's quite. It's quite. It's not quite at the place where you can think about any app framework. It's not quite at the place where you can ignore uh, the enterprise functionality you need around, you know, observability or security runtime, uh, runtime security. Uh, those things still aren't solved in, in serverless. Um, once they are, then you know, I think, and I think containers will be a big part of how they get solved. Then, then I think we'll stop talking about uh, containers as well, and I think we will start start talking about literally just deploying apps. So let's unpack that. So uh, from bare metal to call it VMs to containers to, to what? What, is, what does that construct look like when we're um, not, you know, kind of beyond the container? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I don't want to call it serverless because serverless has just been overloaded. Uh, and it's, it's just... Um, means so many different things to, to folks because it could just mean, oh, let's just put an you know, HTTP API in front, of, in front of a legacy app and that's, that's not quite serverless or it could, you know, could mean for other folks just uh, you know, data, data pipelines uh, where you have to transform data and, and 
you know, you're no longer thinking about whether you're running on top of uh, block storage or, or you know, file storage or anything. I think those, those are overloaded ways to think about serverless. I don't have a good name for it, to be honest. Uh, I, I think we are, we are going to get to what I would call a, a developer interface for containers that doesn't actually expose containers uh, and the nuance of, say, even Kubernetes to a developer. I think there are folks working on it. Uh, there was a recent um, there was a there was a recent uh, public announcement by Spotify, I believe, around a project that they have submitted to CNCF called Backstage, which I think is super interesting in thinking about a developer interface on top of their platform that exposes the primitives that developers care about, but doesn't expose all of the underlying infrastructure concepts including the orchestrator or the containers or anything else. In the monitoring community, we've evolved a lot from, I don't know, call it 20 to 25 years ago when uh, you run a heartbeat check on a server uh, in a server room. And, uh, you know, it was a simpler time. Uh, velocity was much, uh, much slower. And the introduction of some of these new architecture patterns completely upended the monitoring space. And now you have, you know, as you certainly well know, probably dozens of vendors just focused on container monitoring. Uh, what is different about monitoring containers? And you know, how do you think about um, kind of the evolution of monitoring and observability in a container or potentially a post-container world? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, back in the day, it was you just captured your four major food groups, give me CPU metrics, give me network storage, uh, memory. That, that's it, like that's all you needed. Then we added the virtualization layer. There's a little bit more you needed to know about in the underlying hypervisor, perhaps. Containers, I think, took us an exponentially uh, more in terms of what you could monitor and what was relevant to monitor. So part of it was the ephemeral nature of containers. Uh, they come and go so quickly that was there really a point in trying to measure in that instant how much CPU a particular container was using or how much memory it used. Maybe not in that moment for that container, but maybe as a part of a collection of, of pods that were deployed on, on Kubernetes. Yes, perhaps like that was, that was interesting. Um, so I think a couple of things changed. One is the types of things you can measure were infinitely better with containers. Uh, you got a lot closer to the application. Um, with the introduction of Prometheus uh, as, as a collection mechanism, just, you know, we got a ton more metrics out of both the infrastructure and, and the individual containers. I think the movement around open telemetry to standardize the way in which we pull information out from not just uh, containers, but all, and not just metrics, but also for, for logs and traces as well, I think is going to be, is going to be, huge for the industry. That's that's going to really enable us to start standardizing the way in which we watch cloud native applications and what metrics we need to, to measure for. Uh, I think we're still trying to figure out what are the right metrics because it depends still depends a lot on your application, which application framework you're using, how it scales, what are the underlying data sources uh, and data stores you're using. Um, so I think there's still a lot of work to be done. But I think a lot of that is getting standardized as, as we start to figure out, you know, Kubernetes as the main orchestrator, as, you know, Istio, I think, starts to become much more embedded as the standard service mesh that most folks will start to start to utilize more frequently. 
I think we're going to see that uh, a lot of the metrics can be had for quote unquote for free uh, or much more easily than they were before. And they'll, they'll get baked into our standard, you know, collectors, whether they be open telemetry or whether you want to export them via Prometheus. We talked about cloud native applications. And I think that on the coasts where you and I both are, um, we get a skewed perspective about the rate at which enterprise workloads are moving to the cloud or even, even the rate at which they're moving to SaaS first, uh, you know, enterprise infrastructure. First off, do you agree? And then second, uh, you know, fast forward 10 years, will it still be the case that the vast majority of workloads are living on-prem or maybe, what do you see happening in the next 10 years? Yeah, I think, I think there's the great digital divide. Uh, I think there are companies that have moved forward well beyond cloud migration, have leveraged our services, they're developing on containers. And we see this, we see, you know, I saw uh, both at Docker, Google, and at AWS, I've seen there's a class of customers who sharpen their IT maturity in terms of their development processes, really good at architecting their next platforms and being able to look around the corner and see what technologies they want to make a bet on. And, and sometimes they're wrong, but they make the bet and then they move forward and they're, they're happy to course correct. Those are the companies that are able to take advantage of both SaaS, the, you know, call it, you know, platform as a service paths type capabilities and, and uh, you know, all the infrastructure capabilities of, of a cloud provider today. And I think they're working very quickly to accelerate, uh, accelerate and use that to their advantage. And in some cases to catch up to businesses, their, their businesses that are being disrupted by, you know, new, new startups uh, entering the space, right? The, the Ubers and Lyfts and Spotify's of the world. I think, unfortunately, the large majority are still stuck in the other side of the divide. They are still struggling with basic IT practices. They're still struggling with managing a VM environment on-prem. And many of them are still, are still dealing with cloud migration as the first step. And it's going to be hard for them to even make the leap into a cloud native service. This is where I think the interest, the interesting thing will be if the technology for serverless, quote unquote, uh, or something, something developer friendly really starts to engage that audience, they could possibly make the leap. It's, it's almost akin to, to watching like India went from not having any landlines, uh, phone service, to having 5G coverage, right? Because you just had no infrastructure, so you just built it from scratch. And so we saw countries that that you know had very little underlying infrastructure, uh, not IT infrastructure, like physical infrastructure, just leapfrog forward and be able to take advantage of new technology. That might be the case for some of those on the on the wrong side of the digital divide today. Um, but I think it remains to be seen. It's uh, it's going to be a hard jump because they will still have to change their operational practices. And that's that's something that I think they will have to learn. And so if they can learn it quickly and, and, and gain that expertise, I think I think they can make the make the jump. People Rain, we're living through this in real time. One of our customers is a Fortune 100 and they have a four-year $250 million initiative to migrate 120 custom in-house developed applications to Azure. And 
I think there are a lot of merging nimble companies out there that don't appreciate the complexity of a, a, a shift of, of, of that magnitude, the data, the, the risk, the, you know, just the complexity, the resources that need to be added. Is that something that, you know, are you seeing that as well? Or to what extent do you think are we blinded by the light of uh, kind of, you know, more nimble, you know, next, next gen kinds of companies? Yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely blinded by the, the shiny new object. The new, the new startups uh, are all kind of upending the space. Uh, in, in talking to a bunch of organizations, you know, when I was at Docker, we, we realized very quickly there was, a, there, was a base, there was two or three basic needs that many of these companies did not have. They didn't know their application inventory. They had no idea what was running, where it was running, how it was running, what operating systems, or even what application frameworks they were using. So there's a basic inventory need for many of them. And then the second piece was the dependency map across all those applications. And so there's an interesting um, set of startups that, that tried to address this space. Uh, and I, I recall, you know, back at Docker, we tried to, we were partnering with a number of them. Uh, each of them have gotten bought in the last uh, three years, three or four years. Uh, we've seen each of those companies that started in that space where they were trying to either do kind of application inventory, application dependency mapping, cost ROI modeling as you migrate uh, those applications to the cloud. Uh, many, of those, many of those startups got bought, um, one by a, a, an ex-VMware colleague of mine, um, uh, Cloud Physics, uh, just got bought by you know, uh, HP, I believe. And so what we, what we saw was that need was distinct for all of those existing enterprises. And, that, and so the question that, that you know, we were grappling with um, both at Docker and I think, I think all the cloud providers are grappling with this today is, do you go help those companies and help them identify what they've got? Do you just help them write brand new and just tell them scrap what you got and let's start from scratch? That's really hard, really hard to do because you know, you know, we have, we've all seen software development projects where where we start from scratch and what happens there, right? We're, we definitely miss out on a requirement or you miss out on a capability, and then all of a sudden you're scrambling to figure out, like the smart people that built it the first time, uh, you know, thought of something that you know you you may not have thought of when you're rebuilding it. And so rearchitecture projects are always risky. So do you, do you help them? Do you help them re-architect from scratch? Do you help them analyze what they've got and bring them forward? Or do you just wait and some of that stuff just retires and you, ne you never stop, you know, you, you just stop worrying about it and, and you know, only help them with uh, anything that new? Or do you just focus on the startups that honestly can disrupt the space and, and you, you never have to think about legacy until until they become 10 years old or 15 years old and, and they have to think, think about how they're going to restructure. So let's say a CIO comes to you for some coaching and says, we're committed to cloud migration. Should we think about single cloud or multi-cloud? What's your answer? It's a great question. I, I think everyone who wants to do multi-cloud is probably trying to over-engineer for a risk that they think, which is you know, what they saw back in the 80s and the 90s and 2000s of getting locked in. And I think that lock-in is always there. And so you just have to be aware of where you're getting locked in, right? We, we, 
we made some bad assumptions in the past that, you know, it was okay to get locked in, uh, you know, on an x86 hardware or on Windows or even on VMware, uh, you know, and there are companies that benefited from that. But as long as you knew that was the layer on which you were, you were going to have to expend considerable energy if you wanted to unlock yourself, then at least you knew what you were walking into. And I think that's the same for cloud. You should go into one cloud provider. Get yourself working on one cloud provider. Know that you are taking on certain uh, kind of lock-in based on the nuance of the services they offer you. So if you're using their monitoring system or their logging system, then at least you know, okay, I'm I'm locking myself into that. And if I wanted to get out, here's here's what I'd have to do. And there are ways to mitigate that, right? I mean, that's exactly why some of these open source technologies exist. Uh, Open telemetry is a great way to instrument and collect, and you can use that as your primary mechanism to then say, hey, if I want to start on CloudWatch, I'll start on CloudWatch, but I want to move to Datadog later, no problem. I can, I can you know, very quickly uh, make the leap. So I think there's enough layers of abstraction now where you can, you can do that and mitigate the risk without having to do multi-cloud. If there is a specific technology, though, that you absolutely need from a cloud provider. I mean, you, you know, I would I'd never tell a CIO don't go use it. Like if, if you know, Google's ML and AI technology is just exactly what you need or their call center, uh, you know, call center system is, is uh, exactly what you're looking for, use it, but don't try to spread yourself across two clouds doing the same thing. That, that I think is insanity because uh, you'll never win that way. Right, so it's not a risk mitigation strategy or a, a failover strategy. Like we used to talk right. about HA, high availability. It's, it's more of maybe what services do you need? I think that's good, good, uh, good pragmatic advice. Now, you mentioned uh, cloud physics and some of the companies that kind of orbited around the Docker ecosystem and the success they've had. What's one kind of gap or bit of white space in the technology ecosystem where, you know, if you, if you saw a startup pitch you on this thing, you know, what, what would get you excited? Boy, there are, I think, so many open white spaces um, around, around containers, around this technology. I'll give you two that I, that I, I think are underserved. Um, one is, I think, one of the biggest hurdles, I think, to achieving basic CI automation is automating your, your uh, test infrastructure. This was something that even we struggled with uh, at Docker when we were, you know, when I was new there, setting up your first CI pipeline is hard. Um, and part of what's hard about it is it, it's not that, it, you know, with containers, it's gotten a lot easier to promote your code through to a deployment scenario, but how do you know it's actually usable and working? Uh, and that's where a lot of the existing systems going to fall down. You could try to use Jenkins to like, you know, set up your test infrastructure and, and you know, automate the workflows around it. It's, it's not great. Um, I think there was a small startup up in Boston, I believe, called Mabel that was working on this. I, I thought that was super interesting. It's, it's a really not a sexy space, right? It's not, not something you think about, not something you'd really, like, get excited about, but I think it's one of those necessary capabilities, um, you know, just, just like having a, a basic CI workflow engine, right? Um, you know, Jenkins was not sexy either until everybody started using it. You know, now, now we all have our gripes with Jenkins and, and the various tools, but 
they're necessary and and they're needed in the environment to to be able to make forward progress. So I say that that would be an interesting one. Uh, I certainly think the kind of app discovery, app inventory, um, migration space. You know, if you could find ways to migrate existing applications off of VMs and be able to catch those dependencies, that's still hard. Um, there's a there's a number of companies that have Google bought Velostrata uh, that that was kind of doing the you know. Uh, VM to container migration or VM to VM migration. Um, AWS uh, developed a technology called app to container to do similar things. We had something at Docker uh, that that uh, was a similar technology that uh, Marantis now owns. So I, I think that space is still underserved. Um, and I think that's one of the things enterprises are looking for is ways to accelerate their software software development process by just bringing those old apps over. And it's a, you know, still an open question, I think, whether it's worth it or not. But I think you at least have to be able to uh, evaluate, be able to evaluate that. The third I'd look at is actually around collaboration uh, around, around IT management, um, I want to. I want to. I'm trying to avoid calling it uh, AI ops or ML ops because I think those are just heavily overused uh, capabilities. But I think those are any any area in which you can accelerate the ability to root cause what's happening in your underlying infrastructure in the cloud provider in your code. That's going to be super critical. Um, I think there's some interesting folks in the space. Sentry uh, is is one that I've been. Watching a good friend of mine over there, Milan Desai, came over from VMware. Uh, I think that's a space that's going to be super interesting. I think there's a ton of great uh, work that'll be developed around the ML ops or AI ops space as well. We're out of time, but I got to get in one last question because this uh, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. In Silicon Valley, we're uh, called notorious for navel gazing. We like to analyze ourselves a lot. And you've been, you, know, you spent a lot of your career in Silicon Valley and have been a part of some truly iconic companies and cultures. Share with us your perspective on what is different about some of these companies that have just transcended time and space and gone on you know, to become icons maybe you know, versus, versus other companies that haven't achieved that success. Yeah. You know, I got to admit, I, I feel like I've been... I've been lucky in my career to have joined uh, folks at like VMware, uh, Google, at, at AWS, even at Docker. Um, and Docker didn't didn't necessarily have the the financial outcome, but it had a, an amazing outcome on the industry, an amazing impact on the industry, which uh, I was lucky to be a part of. I I think the one the one thread that I would string across those that have been successful is I think the internal culture. Um, it's kind of trite to say, but those companies that have been customer obsessed first as their first priority, as their first tenant, I think are the ones that have that have been able to look around the corner fastest. And where you spend your time navel gazing, where you spend your time looking at, uh, you know, customers should be doing X and if we can only just get them to do X instead of just meeting them where they are. They've got constraints. They've got budgetary concerns. They've got uh, operational issues. They've got organizational behavior problems that they have to deal with. If you can meet them where they are 
and figure out a way to give them one step forward within the constraints that they have, then you will have a much bigger impact than an organization that rethinks the problem from scratch, comes up with something brand new and expects them to change somehow to adopt your solution. Like, and you know, this, this is probably not news to most startups, but it's, it's, it's the one thing that I see most small companies kind of uh, really, really bang their heads against the wall on. Um, you, you have to realize what your customers are not capable of doing, or you're, you have to realize what they're not willing to do or what constraints they can't cross in order to really be able to serve them. And so if you figure that out, and I think VMware realized that with, you know, with virtual machines, they knew that they could meet the system administrator, the Windows administrator, where, where he or she was. Uh, AWS figured that out for the developers and, and for their infrastructure builders. They figured out where they could meet them and where they could unlock them. And they didn't try to do more than that. They just kind of waited for natural evolution to take over at that point. Um, but they, they were constantly trying to get closer and closer to where they were. Um, I think that's, that's the key. Something that amazes me is I'm just thinking about a version of this conversation. If we would have had it three, five years ago, you know, who knows what, how different it would have been, right? Thinking through some of the trends and even, you know, your answer about culture and, you know, how some of these companies have succeeded, you know, beyond anyone's imagination five to 10 years ago, maybe right. uh, it's really, it, it's fascinating. And I'm sure if, when we come back and we sit down and we're talking, whether it's six months, 12, 18, 24, it'll continue to change. Yeah. It could be a totally different answer if we, uh, when we talk again, Dan. Yeah. And I might well, be totally wrong. So who knows? <laughs> there you have it. Uh, Bunjot Chanana, truly one of the, uh, one of the Titans in uh, the development of containers and container monitoring. Uh, and just such a pleasure to catch up with an old friend. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dan. It's great to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Well, that's it for today. Uh, we are back next week with another fascinating guest.